You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills, and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. In 2008, I gave up my 20-year career as a fashion buyer because I was disillusioned with how much was being sourced overseas, and I set out to uncover some of the amazing businesses that are still making in the UK. Since founding Make It British, I've discovered that there is not only still tons of manufacturing taking place in Britain, but that it's a thriving industry. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be chatting to inspiring British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering advice to product-based businesses that make in the UK. So with no further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to episode number 285 of the Make It British podcast. On today's episode, I am chatting to Catherine Bedford, who is the founder of Dashall Cycle Helmets. Catherine had the idea for an innovative and stylish cycle helmet whilst watching the London 2012 Olympics, and then she set about creating her vision and it took her five years to develop and launch the product. All Dashall helmets are made in the UK, and in this episode, Catherine talks about how she set about developing a new and innovative product, how she found factories to then make the helmets, some of the safety testing that bike helmets go through, how she then got PR and found stockists when she first launched, and how the bike industry has sadly been affected by Brexit. Here you go, over to Catherine. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to set up Dashell Helmets? And have I pronounced it right? I've just realised. Well, nearly, it's Dashell. So a bit like the word it's named after, which is thistle. So I was looking for a word that I could trademark. I was looking through Cornish words because our first factory was in Cornwall and saw this lovely word with dash and shell. So you've got the speed of dash and the shell of the helmet and decided to trademark that. But I agree, it's not easy to work out how to pronounce it. But yeah, do you know you're Cornish? It's dashel. Dashel, yeah. right. Brilliant. I'll get it right throughout the rest of the recording then. <laughs> so yeah, how did it come about? Like, what's your background before you, you know, launched sure. your product? I'd always worked for other brands, so I'd never been in-house. I'd done a lot of work over the years, I guess in trend forecasting. So I was working with big brands around the world, looking with them at new materials, looking at sustainable solutions, looking at gaps in the market, and then helping them find the right designers to bring that product to market. So I'd done that for many years, absolutely loved my job, but it did mean getting on an aeroplane every week because my customers were Asia, America, Europe, which my stage in life, I thought, no, I want to base myself in the UK. And I just always had that thing that I'd never seen a project through from start to finish, really wanted to look at doing my own brand and my own product. And so I guess like most people, I'd had ideas for 20 years of what I'd like to do. I finally got to that point where I'd saved enough money up that I could think about setting up my own product. Didn't realize how much of it would go up in smoke by being smashed on test rigs very quickly within a couple of years. But for me, it was cycle helmets. Looking in 2012, there wasn't something that I wanted to wear, just a cycle as I did to meetings, wearing regular clothes. Um, I didn't wear a helmet at all, actually. Um, and then I guess because I had a three-year-old starting to cycle, I was thinking I want her to wear one. It just all happened that I thought this could be the perfect product to look at. It's just, you know, a big addressable market. And I thought that Britain had so many great cycling products, but no cycle helmet. So that's how the idea started. 
Brilliant. So then how did you go about getting a product like this manufactured, specifically in the UK? Like, Did you always set out to make it in the UK? I did. I think from my wider background of working, so I've lived and worked in Asia a lot, I could see what high esteem British-made brands were held in. Uh, same in Europe. And it didn't make sense for me to be making a product as sustainable as possible to then be jumping on a plane to China. I was worried with the safety product about quality control as well. I just wanted to be really close to the manufacturing. So for me, it was always going to be made in the UK. It's such a point of difference and it's something that people can't copy. Whereas you do worry that if you manufacture at a factory abroad, if you don't keep the relationships going, you worry if they'll one day own label it to someone else that you can't protect your IP. So no, there were so many good reasons to make in the UK that I never really looked at other countries. And how did you find the first factory that you worked with? You mentioned it was in Cornwall originally. That was really difficult. I did chat to quite a few factories to start off with. So I found a factory in the Midlands that made safety helmets for construction. I found another company that made riding helmets. It was actually my IP lawyer who's brilliant at thinking laterally. And he managed to find this little factory in Cornwall uh, that worked in composites and did he uh, helmets for the RNLI. And uh, he actually said, why don't you give them a buzz? So after nine months of searching and interviewing, because I was still working full time at that point, um, I went down, met with them and they agreed to give it a punt. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So did you get all the technical drawings done yourself? Did the factory do that for you? Did you use a third party? So I had the sketches. Um, I did have a business partner in the early days. Once he sensibly saw how much this is going to cost after one year, he stuck with his well-paid career. Um, but I was the one doing the drawings. So I looked at helmets that I loved from the 1960s. I was looking at Everoak Vespa helmets, which I just thought were really cool. Um, I'd also spend a bit of time in Vietnam where they have these lovely little moped helmets that must be lethal. They only cover a little of your head with a peak. Um, I just thought something like that would work well. So I'd done my sketch of the silhouette and how I wanted it to look. Um, then once I'd found the factory, then I went to CAD design and uh, went to creating the shell and the look and the liner. Then at that point, the factory started to prototype for me. So the CAD drawing was Brilliant. a big investment. It is a lot of money to get your drawings turned into CAD. But I think if you do everything yourself, I mean, I couldn't do CAD, you'll always look at a design and maybe not be happy with it. It's a bit like your own paintings or your own artwork. If somebody else, and I work with Barbara Oscarby's team, Matt. What is the helmet actually made from, or the original helmet? Because I know you've introduced some new yes. materials recently. Well, I started off working in carbon fibre. Um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's an incredible safety material, but the real reason is also it's it's cheap to mold. Uh, so really, we could build, we could hand lay carbon fiber into molds, and you're looking at making you know a mold that you can create and pull helmets from for a thousand pounds. Whereas you must know from all the factories you visited and the size of the machines that you get to, if you're injection molding an ABS or a PP or traditional plastic that helmets are made from. You're looking at investing about £30,000 for one size, that's not including the liner. And that's before you safety tested, know if it's work. So it was really good for me to start off with carbon fibre. Also start off with a handmade product as well, uh, get to know the product, get to make changes quite easily as well in the early days. So we looked at Kevlar as well. I thought that was a little over the top to have bulletproof cycle helmets. We're not hated that much. So we went for carbon fibre. 
And then because carbon fiber, it just isn't an eco material, it's really hard to break it down. Um, we're working with a company at the moment who are looking at how they can repurpose it. Um, I just wanted to make sure that this was still an environmentally friendly helmet. So I looked at other materials you could make the liner from rather than just your standard EPS. And I found an incredible multi-impact foam that works just as well as an EPS foam, but it doesn't degrade over time. They use it in car bumpers and they have parts of it buried in the Arizona desert. They have other bits in the ice and they dig it up every few years and test it again and it's still fine. Interestingly, you can actually recycle it very easily. It breaks down well. But it means that I was combining this carbon fiber shell with a liner that technically lasts for decades because we don't know how long it lasts for. I can't say that. But if you haven't crashed, um, there's no problem with it. So the idea appealed to me of creating something with amazing materials, super light, handcrafted, that is really a helmet for life if you don't keep, don't keep crashing it. It does mean you have to look after it a bit. We sell it in a backpack so you can keep it in your bag or you know, not get it scratched up the whole time. Uh, but yes, that was the first helmet that we created. And the feedback was that everybody loved the look. So we had really wonderful press from launch. Um, but of course, people didn't love the price. So then this allowed me to prove the concept and go out and get some finance to make a cheaper version of the helmet. Ah, okay. And so tell me how that then developed then. what When you say you made a cheaper version of the helmet, how did you reduce the cost? So that was looking at taking the carbon fiber out. So this was moving to a plastic shell. Uh, so we looked at different plastics and settled on the ABS plastic because uh, it's great to work with. And it's also very easily recyclable in the UK. There's a really good supply chain set up for that. And we designed the helmet so it can be pulled apart at end of life and recycled. So quite excitingly, we start recycling from next year with our supply chain that we've set up because our first helmets were sold in 2019 for this range. So we launched that in the next month. We're going to start getting people to send back their old helmets. And what great is the recyclers we're working with are prepared to test other brands. So we're going to do a helmet amnesty, get people to send back any helmet that they've got. And um, we are going to just work out what we can and can't recycle in future from the other brands that are on the market. So it just becomes not just us, it becomes a really useful service for people because the councils can't recycle cycle helmets. And I don't think anyone knows. It doesn't say very clearly in the instructions, but really it's got a sell-by date in the helmet. You have to say when it's manufactured. And um, really, you're meant to replace it definitely within three to five years of buying it and really? wearing it. Yes. Ah, I, I am a cyclist and so is the rest of my family. And I'm sure my husband has had his cycle helmet for at least 15 years. Yes. So they'll have been sitting in the garage. It every day. Yeah. Well, do you know what? I wouldn't have used the materials if I was that worried about them. It's not like an expiry date where your milk goes a little bit fizzy. Um I safety tested some helmets that I went and bought in car boot sales and I wasn't worried by the results that I got. I thought they were still good. They'd clearly been knocked around. But technically, the EPS foam within a helmet does degrade over time. So, And you don't know what little knocks and drops it's got. I would never leave a bike helmet secured to a bike because that's definitely when things can get knocked and banged. Um, but to be safe, you replace it every five years. And so then that doesn't become such a pain. If you can actually recycle it, then it's still, it's still a good thing. Yeah. So just make sure that it's as safe as possible. You've mentioned testing quite a bit. I would yeah. imagine that sucked up quite a bit of your startup budget. Yes. And it's just the lead times as well. 
you know, we've got two or three test houses in the UK that do everything from shoes to bike helmets to candles. And so I think if you're going to do a product and it needs a CE certificate or more than that, serious safety testing, anyone thinking of launching a product really needs to realize it's going to take at least twice as long as they think to get to market. Um, Test houses might give you a date, but then somebody will be off sick. Uh, Part of the machine will break. They'll need a missing part. It's just not an exact science. So safety testing, you're looking at often a three-month lead time in the UK uh, to get something tested. So how long did it take you then back from that original idea to when you had your first product for sale? And how long ago was that? Remind me. So the first carbon fiber helmet was for sale in September 2017. And first had the idea, chatting with a friend during the Olympics in London in 2012. So five years from initial idea, uh, probably took a year to find a factory, really think, should we go for this? And um, and a few more years to get the design for nest, get through safety testing and get the initial bit of funding that I needed to top up after I'd smashed my savings away just to get the carbon fiber to market. And yeah. So once you did get the product out there, what were your routes to market in terms of selling the helmet? Was it wholesale to cycle shops? Was it direct to the consumer? Uh, I started off with both. So I started off by launching at the London Design Show. Um, So it was great launching with lots of brands who were there doing watches, skateboards, jewellery, as I knew that the people who were likely to buy my helmet would be interested in finding out about good design. Um, They might not necessarily because cycling is just something they do rather than something they define themselves by. They might not be going to a specialist cycling show at Earl's Court at the weekend, as would happen back then. So I launched at a design fair and got picked up with some really good PR so from Wall Street Journal to Monocle, so some really good publications wrote about us from launch, which helped. And I did manage to get into some bike shops, but that's been a really hard part of the business. I think I'm probably going to get myself in trouble with all the lovely bike shops that I deal with. Bike shops are often set up by people who love fixing bikes and don't love talking to people. <laughs> so <laughs> trying to knock on their door and get into there. It, you know, that often goes up through the chain as they grow to become bigger businesses. And of course, there are loads of exceptions to the rule. Um, but often it was really hard to get in with some of the brand. I knew that I really wanted to sell with Tokyo Bike in London. And um, somebody who was a friend of the owner of Tokyo Bike came to a show. And so I gave her a helmet for next to nothing on the condition she cycled around there and showed him how lovely it was because I couldn't get a meeting with him. And that led to sort of a nice relationship. They still sell us today in their fantastic store in Old Street. And for me, wholesale and retail is so important. You know, you don't always know where your marketing budget's going if you're spending on online advertising, but if you're in a shop window in a great part of town, that's great. Um, Cycle helmets, they're just like jeans. You want to go and try them on. You need to just try a couple of sizes normally to see what's right for you. We've all invested in creating slightly different shapes that we think will work for a skull. Um, So no, wholesale's really, really important to me as a business. Working often direct with bike brands has worked really well for us as well. Brompton were really helpful uh, from the early days too, introducing us to some stores in their network. Yeah, I can imagine it would be because, like you said, the people that are kind of the serious cyclists that go out the weekend and do like 40, 50 miles have got those aerodynamic, totally silly looking helmets. But those that are on a Brompton are just doing a few miles from the train to the office or wherever and they want to look more stylish. Exactly. It's just more of the whole idea of chucking the helmet on the train. If, you know, the bike on the train, if you need to with a Brompton, you know, maybe cycling to the pub, putting it in a taxi afterwards if you have to, 
all, all these beautiful town bikes as well. I mean, we sell really well alongside Temple Cycles and Tokyo Bike. And those are people who just love their bikes. You know, they've got beautiful storage where they're hanging on the wall of their hallway and they want the helmet also to sit there in pride of place as we're all living in smaller spaces nowadays. And the bike yeah. becomes, you know, something people are really proud of. Are you ready to finally master your manufacturing and create profitable UK-made products? If so, I've got an exclusive training just for you. This training is for businesses that make in the UK or want to and who are interested in working with me in our British Brand Accelerator for creative small business owners who want to develop and sell profitable UK-made products. If your application is accepted, you'll receive a copy of my exclusive free private training on how to develop profitable UK-made products with ease. In the training, I go through my exact three-part framework that we use to help our clients successfully launch and grow their UK-made brands. And I'll show you exactly how it works along with all kinds of examples. I'll also explain everything you need to know about the accelerator to ensure that we can truly help you to get the results that you're looking for. To apply for an invite to the British Brand Accelerator and get a copy of the training, go to katehills.co.uk forward slash apply. So how many, how did you decide on uh, how many colors and things you were going to introduce? Because this helmet is very unisex, isn't it? So yes. that can get really expensive as well. Yes. I mean, that's why I've never gone for the kind of shrink it and pink it option. So we've never done a pink. I just think that also women that cycle in cities, they tend to be, you know, just quite cool. You have to be quite confident. It just hasn't really fit with our market. So I found that, uh, the colours really work sort of 50-50 men and women. I'd say we don't sell that many in the pale green large. That is slightly more of a feminine colour with the sage green. Um, it's hard. You need to have a range. The bike stores want a range. I think you at Make It British are really good at telling startups don't get carried away with too many colours. I think we probably should hone down our range. We know there's a couple of colours that don't sell well. But when you're selling internationally, um, you need a red in Asia. They absolutely love it. Whereas people love trying it on here, but they tend to go for black. I could probably just sell black, you know, and it would be fine. So particularly in Paris. <laughs> oh, I like the orange one. I'm an I orange do. girl. Yes. I mean, the orange is fantastic in the carbon fiber. Sadly, um, oh no, it's good. They've made the paints more eco-friendly. And what happens is the little carbon fiber hairs now show through the color. It looks like dog hairs have got stuck in the helmet. We had to stop the line when it looked like we were going to get too many seconds it's such a hard color to make the orange and carbon fiber that unless we move to a spray painting version i think sadly that's just we're not selling that at the moment oh no Damn. i know it's cool it's one of my favorites <laughs> i've got one i've still got one that i use it's brilliant so you've done some other collaborations as well haven't you? you've done you've done a collaboration with brooks you're doing something with bracenet at the moment do you want to yeah, tell me about bracenet's those? wonderful so this is so I think everyone's aware of the awful ghost net. That So this is net that has fallen off fishing boats or been cut away, and it carries on floating through the seas, trapping animals and creating plastic pollution. So there are charities that go out and collect these nets, and they need to make money. So brace net work with healthy seas. They take these nets in large quantities, and they turn them into products they can sell. So they make bracelets, they make dog lead, and we pay them to make. Uh, we've 
the loops at the back of our helmet. So they make some very brightly colors. We can't tell what we're going to get. It's quite sweet. They'll tell us, oh, look, this net's come from the Baltic Ocean. This one's come from the Mediterranean. And they send us brightly colored loops that we put on the back of our helmets. And for every helmet that we sell, so as well as buying the loops from Bracelet, we donate five euros to the European charity Healthy Seas, which is fishing them out of the ocean. So it's really good. We've donated £1,000 this year from that range so far, um, which has been great because we just combine it at the moment. We would combine it with more shells if the bike trade demanded it, but we combine them with the factory seconds that we get. So as you change from one color to another, as the plastic goes through machine, you get these quite wonderful tie-dye effects or you get lines that go through. Um, And so I think, you know, customers don't realize when you're buying a perfect barrow or a perfect plastic item, there must be so much waste that's gone into getting a solid block color. That's while you're getting the machine settings right, you're getting often waves or marks. And so it's much better to reuse stuff than recycle it. So we don't put that into recycling. It's perfectly useful, perfectly safe. We combine them with the loops and uh, sell them as the Ocean Edition range. Brilliant. So, um, Catherine, you mentioned that the the first factory you worked with was in Cornwall. Yes. I noticed now you've got some helmets that say they're made in Devon. Yeah. You're based in Stroud. I am. How I'm Stroud do you Valleys. get down to the, to the factories? And, and what was the reason for also using a factory in Devon? Uh, well, when carbon fibre handmade manufacturing is very different to injection moulding plastics. So, you know, you need huge machines you need big production teams so working from almost a little studio and we still work with a small composites factory now in Cornwall uh, we really need to scale up and work with people who'd worked in plastics before Uh, so the first factory I chose in the UK for plastics was the wrong choice they weren't used to creating a consumer facing product there was a lot of waste and rather than telling me they tried to cover it up uh, you know as we could have worked with them and created an ocean edition range but um it just didn't work out. And what happened was COVID happened. So working with a factory that wasn't working well when you couldn't go and visit them because it's vital to keep those two factories, um, we had to part ways very quickly. So happily, I had a call from uh, Rob Law of Trunky. So he, yes, he has his uh, factory down in Devon. He'd already sent me a note as a fellow entrepreneur. We'd already sort of uh, met up on LinkedIn and just said, look, I luckily was having my small size made there. And he said to me, look, why don't you bring the other sizes down to us? I've heard you're having trouble. So in the middle of lockdown, we had to arrange getting tools from one factory down to another. It's a lot of money moving all of this, getting them replated. But it's just been great ever since we've moved to Magma in Plymouth. It's just the right fit. Really great team, really good communication, lovely modern factory, uh, nice atmosphere with the people working there incredible tech. They've got these brilliant robots that pull uh, the helmets off the production run, take the sprues out of the middle and then put them on. They're hand assembled at the end. So it really allows us to scale. I think when you find the right factory, then everything just becomes easier. You know, if there is an issue, they're never scared just to pick up the phone. We chat it through. I go down and meet with them. Um, So yeah, it's, it's been good. Oh, I thought you might say that because obviously I know that I've interviewed Rob for the podcast yes. before from Trunky and I know that he reshored a lot of his production back to that factory in Devon. Magna. Yes. So, no, they're a good team. And excitingly for them, they've just been bought. So when Rob sold Trunky, uh, the 
the buyers of Tonky didn't want to take on a factory, but happily, some of the people involved thought, actually, that's an incredible factory, we'll buy it. So happily, now there's a lot of cash being put into the factory, it's getting even better systems, the warehousing is brilliant. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a factory to watch, I think. They're going from strength to strength. And they're still making trunkies as well. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, that's music to my ears then. I'd yes. love to hear that. I must get down and visit. It's a shame I would. Down to visit. Yeah, it's actually well, quite, a, Robin, yeah, it's good. It's involved. a nice, brightly coloured factory. We've got cycle helmets and trunky suitcases going through. It, yeah, it's really fun down there. So Catherine, what have been the challenges that you've encountered? Because so far it sounds like it's all been play, plain sailing, apart oh, from really? maybe a factory that wasn't. <laughs> working out as, as you'd hoped. But what have been the other challenges that you've encountered along the way? I think access to finance has just been the biggest challenge all the time, never raising enough money. So starting off with a really good SEIS. So that's the seed investment fund where investors can invest up to 150000 They immediately get 50% of their money back from the government. So it's a really good way to encourage investors to invest in startups. When I went for the second round of funding, just didn't go for enough funding, I think, to launch the the new plastic helmet because we could just see the sales on the horizon. We had two things that happened. One, we had COVID. So with moving machines and moving tools, that swallowed up a lot. And worse than COVID was Brexit. We just didn't realize what an effect that would have on our business. We were exporting 40% uh, from the day we launched. You must find this. People it's, we love a made in British good in Britain, but they really love it abroad. You know, we had, or, you know, such a good reputation. Um, and sadly, it's just become the online sales for us haven't recovered. We've looked at, you know, it's a lot of money to go warehouse abroad. Regulations keep changing. Um, so that's been hard. So running a business. Um, sorry, noise. running no, it's a business. my dog growling. Oh, that noise is my flipping good. dog growling. I thought it was me. I've. Mine are, mine are locked up next door. That's fine. I should have done that with mine. They've just broken into the room and now this oh, one's demanding a back good. scratch. Oh, sweet. Um, so I think access to finance when you're trying to run a business, running a business on a shoestring is really difficult. There are always things that crop up. Um, it looked like there was going to be a lot of bureaucracy after Brexit as well. Potentially, us having to do a whole new set of UK safety uh, certification rather than just sticking to the European certification, which I'm hoping doesn't happen because the European certification is good enough for Britain. It's a bit of an excuse to print money if we then just have to pay the test houses again for everything. Yeah. Um, so we will see. Hopefully that will stay sensible. So yeah, exports are tricky. The sad thing is it's cheaper for my store and easier for my stores in Europe to buy helmets made in China now than it is to export from the UK. So we've really lost out to other countries. Um, since Brexit went through. Yeah, I know. And I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of brands that, yeah, they're avoiding selling to Europe altogether. Yes. Now it's just not working. It doesn't seem to improve. I, you know, after I make a comment like this on an interview, I get inundated with people saying, oh, we can manage your shipping, we can manage your warehousing. I've got a really good warehouse. You know, they're sending a quarter of a million trunkies around Europe. We still have customs officers who are, we don't know, they've had a bad lunch, they turn shipments away. You know, we know the labeling, we know how to do it. It's not easy. And there's always something bigger in the news. You know, it's a terrible state out there with wars, or even if it's just the royal family. But, you know, nobody really seems to be looking at actually so many businesses. I think I looked at Isla Bikes, such a brilliant business, who they didn't go bust. I think they just decided to end things a few weeks ago. I think since Brexit, you know, that's a big employer in Wales. 
it's just become that point, I think, for a lot of us, just business isn't fun anymore. It was really fun doing business with Europe, really easy. I think that also, separately to everything, the bike trade has had its worst year for 20 years because it's been a real boom or bust. You had COVID where everyone jumped on their bikes, had the most incredible take-up of cycling. And I think all of us thought, this is it. This is the beginning of everyone realizing how amazing it is to cycle. They won't go back to their old ways. Let's make more. There's going to be never-ending demand. It's going to be this hockey stick. Um, so we all made lots of product. The bike stores bought lots of bikes. They were desperate to get hold of bikes because there was a shortage. You then had the Suez Canal crisis, which stopped a lot of products. They then ordered from other places just to ensure something got there. Then lockdown ended and demand fell off a cliff. Suddenly, all these bikes from around the world are landing on bike stores who don't have the demand, and they're stuck with old bikes. You know, a lot of people don't want to buy an old e-bike. It's a bit like buying an old car. You want the new battery, the new technology. And then they don't have the money to buy accessories because they're just trying to make do. So the bike industry has had its worst time. It really is. I think a lot of people are hanging on by their fingernails. As also the cost of living, people are buying unless they have to. You'll hang on to the old bike, you'll hang on to the old accessory. So sadly, lots of great brands just haven't made it this year. And I think 40% of our retailers have closed down in the last year. Oh, that's so sad. And it really they would all is. be independent retailers, wouldn't they? Some, the yeah, some are chains as well. Some are chains that just overbought. And again, this discounting just doesn't work. The Black Friday, the never-ending race to the bottom. It's such yeah. a bad business model. And you look at people doing that. You looked at Pure Electric, who launched as such an exciting business. They were going to be eco. They were going to do incredible, beautiful, interesting stores. And then, again, just sort of seemed to take on the sort of uh, Halfords, Evans philosophy of pilot high, sell it cheap. Who's going to be the first to discount on Black Friday? And it's actually not what the customer wants when you're investing in something. They want to go to a showroom uh, and find out what's good. It's why it's worked well for Brompton. They don't do great sales all the time, but people still go there because it's a good product and they believe in the provenance. Yeah, that's so true. And once you start discounting, that's yeah. just a race to the bottom. There's no going yeah. back. You train your customers to look for a bargain or to wait do you discount, especially on something like a bike, which you're not buying regularly, it's a special purchase. It says, I'll just wait for the next sale. Exactly. It's in for all products now, isn't it? But yes, it's a sad thing. I remember talking about Black Friday as a trend forecaster 15 years ago, just chatting it through with retailers and talking about, oh, look at these brands in America. Some of them deliberately don't sell on this commercial day. I never thought that that would then, you imagine like 12 years ago when you were at Marks and Spencer's, it wasn't a thing, yeah. was it? And now this has taken over and I can't see how they put the lid back on it. No. Well, I was at Debenhams after Marks and Spencers. That right. was like the worst thing I ever could have done. <laughs> and they were always, 80% of their sales were. were on 20% of their, were the days when they had their sales. So 20% of the year they were on sale and that was when they sold 80% of their stock. And we used to buy stock specifically to put in the sale. So we'd buy in at like an 85% margin. It was ludicrous. Wow. So we'd buy in a bikini for £3 and sell it for 20 and then say, hey, it's it's half price. It's only 10 but really you're only getting £3 worth of bikini for it. It was, you know, people just see a 50% off and think they're getting a bargain, but they're not. I saw this with brands badly. I worked with. You look at Gap, like when they first launched in the UK, we all thought they were so cool in the 90s and we thought their stuff was great. 
And then within 10 years, you would never buy anything unless it was on sale because you knew another 40% sale was coming around the corner. And if you gave them their, your email, you were just bombarded. And look at it now. It's just, um, yeah, it's just seen as a yeah. budget brand. It's a real shame. Well, there you go. Gap's gone. That's, yeah. I think that's online in the UK only. Debenham's gone. Um, yes. Lesson learned there. It is, definitely. So I think, yes. You're absolutely right. Just make good things, sell them at a certain price. Don't buy too much stock, as we all do. <laughs> so what are your plans then looking forward, Catherine? Where do you see Dashel going in the next few years? We really want to get going into other markets. So it's a little bit of more money we've got to raise just to get into America. You do have to set up as a separate entity in the States to make sure that, you know, if there's any legal issues. Um, apparently everyone told me you will get sued if you launch in the USA, you need to go over there, set up, incorporate in Delaware, do it all properly. So we've got loads of stores really keen. We have a really good market over there. So we want to launch in the USA. We would also like to do, uh, some new molds. We'd like to create a helmet that fits the Asian heads better, um, because we have different skull shapes according to our ethnicity. So over in the Far East, they do have rounder skulls. So then you find that they find that it's pinching from side to side. So we need a rounder shape that's shorter from front to back. Uh, and we do have great demand for the carbon fiber. That really is from the Far East. So ideally, we would look at creating some rounder versions for our helmets for the Asian market, but also just carrying on with collaborations. We've got the Team GB license, which is exciting. So again, looking at helmets to do to raise money for the team. So 15 cents for those helmets go straight to Team GB. And that's fun. We're not creating helmets that the Olympians are going to cycle in. It's just about people who are inspired to get out there and do a bit of sports. And that's why Team GB liked us. They love a sustainable brand that's just encouraging anyone to get out there and have a go. Uh, we're in Soho Farmhouse in Oxfordshire as well. So they've bought some beautiful helmets to match the bike. So we're looking at doing more collaborations as well with other brands, branded products and special uh, edition colors and See what see what comes off over the next year. I love the Team GB thing. That's amazing. Great. How did that come about? Did they contact you? No, did you I really them? that took a lot of pestering. So that was me trying to network as usual, trying to find out who the right person was, emailing, calling, and then suddenly getting a call just a few months. Saying, Actually, we do want some helmets. How quickly can you turn the brand? Can you do it within a month or two? And of course, we did. And then the whole thing was postponed. But you know, we said. And it would have been great if we'd been able to go over to Tokyo. I think the Department of International Trade has a pavilion for brands. We'll find out if they're doing that again next year. Um, but it's still really exciting to be involved in any level with it. Excellent. So anyone listening to this, then, if they want to buy any of your helmets, where's the best place to find them? Well, we sell the whole range online. Um so everything from our website, if you want to go and try them in stores, then uh, we list the stores that stock them on our website to go and have a look and see where's closest to you. Um, so that's across the UK, Europe and Asia. Um, so, yes, we're really trying to just support independence as much as we can. Brilliant. And it's dashel.co.uk, isn't it? -E dashel.co.uk. That's correct. Dashel.co.uk. Brilliant. Catherine, you've been such an amazing guest. Thank you so much for joining me on the Make It British podcast today. Oh, thanks, Kate. Lovely to chat. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.